Hello and welcome to episode four of this season of Book Shambles. Trent here doing the intro again for this week because Robin is still off with Professor Brian Cox talking about stars and such. But he and Josie will be back to do all the intros and outros next week with our first UK guest of this season. But for today, we've got our first New Zealand guest, which we recorded when we were out in uh, Auckland, this one. Uh, with the Cosmic Shambles live tour earlier in the year. And it is nanotechnologist Dr. Michelle Dickinson in the guest chair. But before we get to that, just a quick reminder to support the podcast on Patreon, if you can, patreon.com slash bookshambles. Uh, Starting next week, there will be longer episodes for Patreon supporters, as well as uh, each week one Patreon supporter will win a box of books. So if you do have a spare pound or New Zealand dollar, perhaps uh, head over there and pledge to help keep the show going. We would really appreciate it. Uh, We are very grateful to all of our Patreon supporters. Thank you very much. And now on to this week's episode. Josie. Yes. I was going to ask you what you have for breakfast, but I know. You know because you're with me. I had a lovely eggs Benedict. Uh, No, eggs Florentine, I want to say. It was a Florentine, I think, yeah. What's the difference? Uh, Benedict has, I think, ham in it, whereas Florentine has spinach. Mm. I'm a sort of not fully committed while abroad, but trying to be vegetarian during the week. <laughs> but while I'm abroad, it's really hard because you're like, it, you know, it's what day even is it technically for my yeah, body? Fair you fair know, what are they, who gets a name like Florentine or Benedict? Like, are they? I know. You think it should be choice. spinachy eggs? I know. Because we were doing a podcast last week about um, aliens, and if you discover new alien species, for example, or new bacteria, now as a scientist, you're not allowed to Sorry, name them yeah. after yourself. Why? I was like, what's the point? Why did you become a scientist if you can't name stuff after yourself? Why aren't you allowed to name stuff after and yourself? And your eggs? Totally. You'd be like, put spinach on this. Florentine. But why aren't you allowed to name them after yourself? I don't know. Is there no, it? but there must be like a reason behind it. Well, they want to keep the Latin-y thing. Yeah. Mm. They want it to it feel would give like you the it, wrong motivation. Better taxonomy. Ego over science. That's the problem. No, but is it a moral argument or is it like a organisational argument? Because yeah, you're allowed to have wasting diseases named after you. Which is a weird mix, isn't it? You'd think that you go aliens, quite a positive thing, right, possibly. But Huntington's disease. Yeah. Mm. Lou Gehrig's disease. Yeah, they Lou Gehrig, yeah. <laughs> Let's go, Josie. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Robin and Josie's book, Shambles. I am Josie. A little bit tired, Josie. No, I'm not bit, tired. It's quite a kind of moody I'm start. struggling through a cold, but I'm struggling through with the British spirit that will win us the war against Spain. Oh and yeah, it's let's already not, let's made not. Brexit such an absolute runaway success. To give you some idea, we're recording this about two days after the main bit of UK news we've seen is uh, former uh, Tory leaders suggesting that perhaps we should go to war over Gibraltar against the Spanish, and that finally barley sugar will be available in quarter pounds again uh, for those who can afford barley sugar, and that our passports—the main reason we left Europe was because people didn't like the colour of their passports. So anyway, it's all been very rational and logical, which is why we're joined by a scientist, uh, Michelle Dickinson, who is uh, a podcaster, a science demonstrator, a scientific researcher. uh, And uh, well, we're going to talk about we're in Auckland. And uh, so we'll talk about what books. Have you found any books in Auckland yet? Well, 
I tell you what I have done. We recorded a podcast with Kate Grenville last week and she recommended a book called Bush Studies by Barbara Bainton, which is short stories written in the second half of the 19th century about kind of women in the bush who were being, who were very righteous in their indignation, basically. And I read the whole thing on the flight over here from Australia. I just sat and read it. It was absolutely wonderful and I really recommend it to you. Short book. Four or five short stories. They're brutal. They reminded me a bit of The Proposition. Do you remember that film? Yes, brilliant film. Nick Cave did the soundtrack, Nick, eh? Uh, well, he didn't just do the soundtrack, he wrote the screenplay. Did he? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. thought that, but then I corrected myself halfway through because I didn't want to look a fool. No, no, no. You haven't looked a fool. If anything, I've been too eager to correct. Like we'll cut out the full bit. We'll yeah, cut out the full like, bit. The, uh, Nick Cave, of course, uh, responsible for that film. Brilliant piece of filmmaking. It is a great film, and it's. Uh, I, I watched again. I know it's not book stuff, but I, I watched one more time with feeling on the flight over from Melbourne to Auckland. And if you still haven't seen it, uh, the film about the making of Skeleton Tree album, uh, with also the uh, tragic background of uh, the death of, of of Nick Cave and his wife Susie of, of uh, one of their children, is an incredible piece of work about uh, love and friendship and loss. Uh, and you should also have the complete lyrics, which I bought the other day, which has been updated with Nick Cave. There's a good book recommendation, mm. I reckon. Uh, anyway, Michelle, I'm going to start off. So Auckland, so far, what I haven't bought at the Green Dolphin Bookshop in, in St. Kevin's Arcade is the Hamlin Book of Monsters, which I'm going to go back for immediately <laughs> after this by Dan Farston, and The Puritan Jungle, Ooh. which is looking about how the puritanistic nature of America leads to a seedy sexual underbelly. Non-fiction. I agree. So I'm going to be buying that. I agree. It's obvious. And we should recommend the women's bookshop that we went oh, to. The women's bookshop great. on Ponsonby Street. Good. Beautiful bookshop. Really wonderful oh, it was, bookshop. It was, it was one of those bookshops that makes you go, why can't I read faster? Yeah. This is so annoying. Mm. I'd like to take all of these and read them all today. And I won't. But also, it's so nice that you go, I'm not even going to read all these books I'm buying. I'm just going to look at them. Mm. And remember how lovely they were in that bookshop. <laughs> um, oh, the book that I bought, and I want to know more from. For you bought that? I yeah, saw yeah. that Pop first. In. The uh, yeah, but you couldn't be bothered to go back. She went, "It's a women's bookshop. Mm. Why are they trying to define me? I want to go to a men's bookshop, fascist." So <laughs> I would instead, never say that. <laughs> as someone who's a little bit more fluid than you, I bought uh, Paul Callahan, Luminous Moments. Now, mm. Michelle, I don't know about Paul Callahan, uh, but he was a great New Zealand science communicator. He was an incredible science communicator, Sir Paul. Callahan. Callahan, who sadly has passed, is, I mean, there are so many funds that we have the Callahan Innovation, basically our big funding um, is named after him. He was one of the best science communicators who really broke through some barriers of not just communicating to the public, but communicating to politicians and being able to make oh. policy change by explaining what um, is quite complex stuff to be really simple. So he is an incredible um, idol and hero for all of us science communicators for how to be an academic and actually still do your research, but also be able to communicate what you do and um, and really relevant stories. There's another book, if you haven't read it, called Get Off the Grass. Um, so Get Off the Grass um, was started by Sir Paul Callahan, and then sadly he passed away, and so it was finished by um, Professor Sean Hendy. And it's about it's a very New Zealand book about business, which is we have always based um, stuff on agriculture, and so we're a big farming community, and actually you can't, with climate change and with how much pollution is happening from from um, farming, actually what we need to do is get off the grass, stop using our local resources that is agriculture and move towards a high-tech cloud-based community which is more um, carbon neutral and so started by Sir Paul and um, finished by um, Sean Hendy probably two years ago now. Get off the grass, very good book. I really like the fact that last night I was having a conversation with uh, some of the other performers at the show where they were saying that in New Zealand because climate change is taken so seriously that even like 
the conservatives are still like, well, I'm green blue, yeah. which is like no, so our Tory, to me. So our Conservative Party equivalent is the National Party, and they have yeah. a green blue section. Can't which believe is a big, it! Astonishing. Yeah, it's a big part of what we are and what we do. And it's so as you're complaining about Brexit, I just because I left the UK in 2001, and I listen to people who still live there, and I'm like, oh, just come here because you know, last week, like our Prime Minister, he won a sheep shearing competition. Like, that's how serious it is. <laughs> I saw he made a disgusting pizza where he put tin spaghetti and then pineapple yeah. and ham and no cheese. Even. No, I know. Yeah. And that was on a pizza. Yeah. And he wasn't impeached for that behaviour, which no. he should have been. I know. And he Facebooked it and everybody's like, well, that's what the PM has for dinner. Yeah. <laughs> so it's pretty chilled here. I feel like, yeah. you know, we, we listen to this whole banana story and leaving the EU and we're sitting here going... It's just another nice day. I'm going to go for a surf. Oh. So if you want to emigrate, it's actually quite easy and it's lovely over here. Oh. Weather's much nicer. We have nine months of summer. Oh, stop. So what you, your lifestyle was originally, when you were growing up, you moved to a lot of different countries. Yeah, so um, I'm a Royal Air Force kid. So my dad was in the Royal Air Force. And so we did what every military brat did, which is every three years you move country. So um, Wow. It was awesome. It was super awesome. I loved it. And because I'm mixed race, so my dad was first posted to Hong Kong when he was 17. And anyway, he met my mom and voila, here I am. Um, so having a mixed heritage is really interesting because I grew up in Hong Kong under British rule, um, which is great because I feel like I have two cultures that are both mine, you know, and I can speak yeah. two languages and I can order extra stuff from the Chinese takeout and, you know, <laughs> um, real benefits. And But I love that because I feel like it's made me so resilient to be to travel now. And since then, I've traveled all over the world and I've lived in India and I live in Japan and I lived in China and that lack of fear of going to a new place and meeting people and just sort of fitting in and understanding that culture defines people and understanding people's cultures helped to open doors and I loved being a military kid like I just thought the opportunities but having said that I come to New Zealand which is incredibly safe right we don't lock our doors I once sold my car here when I first moved here I bought a car and I knew it was one of those cars that was only going to last me a short period of time before I decided what I actually wanted which was a bicycle so I sold my car and we have this eBay equivalent here. It's called Trade Me. And so I put it on and I work. So I don't have time for people to come to my house. So I put a note and when people emailed me, they said, I said, oh, well, it's parked at this bus stop and the key's on the front tire and don't take it too far. But, you know, if you drive too much, just put a bit, bit of petrol in. Eight people drove it that day, took it for a test drive, parked it beautifully back. And then one of them called me, said, oh, I'll buy it, please. And then <laughs> That was it. So I didn't even meet the person who was buying it. They put the money in my bank account and the car was sold. And you just uh -oh. don't get that anywhere else. It's quite lovely. So, yes, I'm here now, um, having lived all over the world and been a military kid. And so I talk about growing up in, you know, in the military. So we grew up on a lot of military bases and we were based in the UK a lot when the IRA was an issue. And I was right. I was in war. I was living near Warrington at the time of the Warrington bombings. And those kids who died were the same age as me. So it was really something that was part of our life. And you realize you're normal when I was talking to somebody in New Zealand and I was talking about when I, you know, that thing you do to check under your car for bombs. And they were like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, you know, because I used to have this this mirror with a stick and a torch on the end. And it was my job every day before we got driven to school was to check under our car for any devices that weren't there. And so every morning I would have this torch and this mirror and check for bombs because we're on a military base. And that's what you do. And I remember coming to New Zealand, people like, I, I just have no idea what you're talking about. And I have no idea what it's like to live in a place um, where that is your normal as a child. 
Um, and, you know, since then I've been to interesting countries like Iran and Israel where you realize that you're really lucky where you grow up sometimes around safety. Sure. Um, See, but that's an interesting thing what you're just saying is because uh, I think we just got over to Australia where there was the incident in, in Westminster where uh, I think it was in there four people died, including the person who uh, drove a car into Westminster Bridge. And then you look at across the world, there are news organizations basically saying that, that, that Britain is now under this kind of extreme, oh, extremist Islamic kosh and that it's caliphate. And this is, uh, and, and what you're talking about, you know, when you talk about what was going on uh, on the mainland uh, in the United Kingdom. But there wasn't all this kind of talk yeah. of, you know, the, the, the Catholics had taken over, the whole, you know, Britain is. Um, why do you think it is? especially because you're now viewing that culture from a yeah. distance. Why are we able to turn these incidents into such incredibly kind of um, potent propaganda? Well, sensationalism headlines sell for a start. And the way that we... we get that information now is through social media so before you would have one newspaper that was printed at you know the at the end of the previous day and that was everybody's source of information so you could make one statement and everybody looked at it but now you're competing against everybody else's statement and so you want to be the more newsworthy you want to be the one that is more extreme and and that's the one that gets clickbait and we know that advertising is based on how many clicks not the content so sadly i think we've got this interesting media where people are looking at eyeballs as opposed to content and and I think creating a story and and that inherent fear so as a person who's grown up under lots of different cultures and lived in lots of different places um it's really interesting to hear people talk about a civilization that they've never been to or a culture they've never been to and be like oh I couldn't do this or you know there's this yeah. closed-mindedness around well I couldn't you know, I couldn't live in Japan because it's so different or this hierarchical structure um, but when I was living in India, it was really interesting. Because I am mixed race, I'm really lucky in that I can fit into a lot of cultures. So um, in Iran, I had a hijab. In, in India, I had a sari. People just assumed you are one of them. And once you are one of them, you realize that everybody is just a human who wants to be loved and is trying to fight for the things that they believe in. Um, and I think what's happened is actually now we have these perceptions of what a something is, name that culture, name that religion. And it's not based on our own experience. It's based on this media that we're gaining, social media, whatever it is, around what those people are portrayed to be. Um, and I think the stereotype, sadly, in many cultures that we don't maybe know very much about um, is is a negative one. So. Iran was really interesting because I'm a staunch feminist, right? I'm a female engineer. I've worked my tail off fighting the system of being the only girl in the room. And um, going to a country where females are, I don't say treated like second-class citizens, but there's definitely a, a difference in gender there was really interesting. And I remember feeling I had this hijab on and it was 40 degrees and I was boiling and it was all black and I just I just wanted to be in a T-shirt and shorts. Um and I had this attitude of, well, I'm going to be different and I'm going to be that woman they're going to have to listen to. And instead, I felt incredibly humble to have this hijab. I felt very, it was almost like a weight literally on my shoulders that made me step back. And there was a couple of things there. But one thing that totally changed my mind, and I'd gone in with this mentality of um, women shouldn't be treated as second-class citizens, was having this dinner. So I couldn't eat with the males I was working with because obviously they separate because I'm not married to them. But they had this dinner where they invited their wives. So when the wives are present, then I could be part of this meal with both genders in. And we, it was a buffet meal and it was beautiful. And I sat down and the buffet came out and the host said, okay, you can now go and get your food. And immediately all the men stood up and went and got the food. And I was like, roll my eyeballs been like oh here we go I'm gonna get the scraps again da, da, da. wait for the men to do this and 
was really interesting is the men got up and they got the best things and they put them on their plates. And then they came back to the table and they gave the plates to their wives. And then they went back and they had scraps. And I said, and I pointed to the woman next to me and I said, what was that? And she's like, what do you mean? I was like, they just went up and they got you the best bit. And they're like, well, of course. I mean, I'm the most precious thing in their lives. They'll treat me like the best person in the world. And we don't hear those stories. And I remember that being a whole point of, it's not about being a second class citizen. It's about understanding there are differences in genders and how they're treated. Actually, the husband is treating the wife as if she is the the best. And it just gave me a different sense of something that I thought I had an opinion about. And I was like, oh, I just don't understand. I don't know enough about this culture to have an opinion. Do you think Mike Pence does that as well when he, because he's, uh, as we know, there's been this very strange thing in uh, Washington where uh, various other people have come out and said, of course, as someone who's married, I would never see a woman in any situation whatsoever. You never know what might happen. And it's, uh, but I reckon Mike Pence would, the, the, the first part of that, the kind of isolation, but I think he'd still have the really good bit. I don't think I don't think he'd give them a like the, the nice bit. <laughs> I, I might be wrong about Mike Pence, but there's something <laughs> as someone who loves the Victorian science of physiognomy, I think the length of his nose suggests cruelty. I'm thinking about what's the head one? Phrenology. Oh, oh I'm a great. Oh, the bumps <laughs> on his head—they're even worse. I, yeah, but Real. I think it's also fair to like say the Australia, uh, Australian. Oh my God, the Iranian regime is oppressive, and the oh, Iranian regime is, you know had inbuilt into it repressions against women that Iranian women are constantly fighting and constantly struggling against and then to also say that like Israeli uh, what is wrong with me you're doing the whole world I'm so tired (laughs) no that the Iranian culture and uh, you know um, Persian culture and mm. you know culture that existed long before the name of Iran like you know that it's so rich and so large mm. that this regime that has been operational since 1979 is never going to be the be all and end all yep. of what Iranian culture yep. is and that uh, you know for me like it's it, any sort of theocratic regime has nothing to do with religion mm. you know and mm. so like it's not even I don't know to my mind I mean, again, but I don't really know enough about Islam, really. But to my mind, it's not an Islamic regime if mm. it is autocratic and, you know, has religious police that are forcing women into certain behaviours and stuff like that. But it's that. So it's that education around culture. I find it really interesting being mixed race. I remember when I first moved to England, it was 1991, and I was the only non-white kid in the school. They saw me as non-white. Now, I don't know what colour I am because I'm mixed, but they definitely saw me as not the norm and and there was a whole bunch of racism as kids do you know it was, yeah. and I remember learning words that I didn't even know existed and I went go home to my dad and be like what does this mean and he was like who called you this that's because it's like, so arbitrary if you, yeah. if you go outside a culture and you look at the racism you're like wow so those people hate those people <laughs> yeah. and call them that yeah and so sadly the whole you know the London recent incident in London is, is really just one person it seems they found who you know went off his head a little bit and it's a sad story but maybe a mental health issue around that and yet it suddenly turned into how can we fit it into this big terror basket that we have to frighten people so it's just crazy it does seem we're, we're meant to live in perpetual fear because that makes us most uh, malleable for uh, small groups of uh, uh, interested <laughs> yeah. so I want to get on to last night uh, in the show uh, in Auckland you were talking about Challenger Space Shuttle, which was, of course, one of the great tragedies in the history of NASA. Um, and uh, I wanted to ask you more, but one of my favourite books of Richard Feynman's is What Do You Care What Other People Think, which, mm-hmm. as well as including very, very 
beautiful story of mm. the relationship with his first wife, uh, who died very young, and it's a, the, the whole relationship from start to finish there. The other major story in that is the Challenger uh, space shuttle, why that blew up. And you were talking about that on stage. I wondered, when, when did you first become aware of the backstory of, of the uh, Challenger space shuttle? So, so I, I'm an engineer academic, and so I try and teach um, engineering principles. And do you know what? I, I teach now as a science communicator, all sorts of principles. And what I've learned is the power of storytelling. And so I've gone hunting for stories. You know, there's always amazing stories behind why things happen. And so Challenger, I thought, was really interesting. And what became really depressing is something that was very prominent to me isn't in the lifetimes of my students. They don't know what I'm talking about. And I remember it being on TV. You know, I remember stopping and being like, well, this isn't good. And I was a kid. But to now try and teach 18-year-olds who it's just something in the past, mm. how do you bring that out? So I was looking for stories around well, why and how and how is this explained and what did we do? Um, and interestingly, one of my girlfriends, um, one of my best girlfriends, she was um, a NASA rocket scientist on the Challenger mission. Um, and she left NASA because of how it was dealt with. No. Uh, yeah, she's uh, and she's amazing. And she quit science because of it, because she was so heartbroken with how it was dealt with and all the things that could have been saved. And there was this pressure for this public profile of let's just get it out. We know it's not quite ready. And so all she was things. like, please, this isn't right. This isn't ready. They all, if you talk to people now, a lot of them knew that it wasn't ready. Well, not that it wasn't ready. It wasn't the right time. It was because there was so much pressure around it. You know, there was, they had to move it. There was this pressure with the funding. There was, they hadn't put one out in ages. And then the temperature thing. I mean, it's, it's one of those sad stories. And for me, it's great to teach from because what it showed is they actually measured the temperature of the, of the system. They knew it was cold, but the person whose job it was to measure it, he didn't have another job. So it was like, okay, measure the temperature and write it down and leave it in the book. There was no system that said, if it's below this, tell somebody because mm -hmm. bad things will happen. So it's also fascinating from a systems engineering point of view when you're looking at disasters that it's, it's a couple of people making decisions, but if they're not talking to each other and mm. they don't have all the information. So the guy who was measuring temperatures felt awful because he said, well, nobody told me that this meant this to somebody my job was literally just to measure temperatures and so I did and I put them in the book as I was supposed to do and if somebody said to me actually if it should be higher than this or lower than that you need to tell somebody he's like of course I would he's like I felt I had the information and yet <sighs> nobody had it and yeah so there's a lot of individual stories around challenge and what somebody could have done I mean there was software modeling that I mean all of that that happens around you know spatial disasters that it's not just one incident it's a whole series of little pockets that didn't connect that caused the, the big thing and the pressure of trying to please the public and please the government and but those stories are incredible because when we're learning about, I mean, I'm fascinated with engineering disasters. I'm a fracture mechanics engineer and now a nanotechnologist, but I study disasters in, in the hope that we can learn and create systems so that we don't do the same thing again. And what we know is that we don't learn very well because everybody thinks that they're the genius and they know how to do it this time. And, oh, that was in the past and that's different. Um, and we see a lot of repeat structures fail, sadly. But I, I love the power of storytelling. and I'm fascinated How much is that? That's interesting because ego seems to come into this particular story uh, with NASA. That there were, yeah. You know, as, as I think we talked on a previous podcast about Rebecca Payton's uh, um, story of her sister who uh, died, and she wrote a play which is available as a book called uh, um, "Sometimes I Laugh Like My Sister." And one of the reasons that happened was she was kind of. We don't know if you're committed to your job, and you're kind of pushed. And in the same way, it appears that with that particular NASA story, 
astronauts who may have questioned it were like, oh, what, you're scared to go into space? And as you said, also this kind of business thing, which was we need to launch now, they want to cut our funding, we need to put on something spectacular. So how often do you think, or uh, uh, maybe that's a bad question, but that problem where you go, the science is there, Mm. but the science is going to be kind of is put to the side because it gets in the way of the business element. Uh, Do you know what, though? If we only made decisions on scientists saying this isn't going to work, we'd never do anything because we pretty much always say, oh, there's a risk here or there's a risk there. So it's that managed risk. Um, So I'm not saying don't listen to the scientists, but also we can be, and I'm speaking for myself, quite binary in our data output. We'll be like, well, here's your risk factor and I wouldn't do it. But actually in the grand scheme of things, it may be a small risk. So it's a hard thing to say. You should listen to your scientists, but the chances are if we listen to all of our scientists all the time, we'd never probably make any of the discoveries we've ever made in business. You need some people who are just idiots who are like, I've done that already. (laughs) Like, but that was a terrible thing to do. Oh. Well, that's that's a bit like Barry Marshall, isn't it? Barry Marshall, the Nobel Prize winning uh, Australian Australian scientists who, uh, you know, what, don't drink that. That's really bad for you, drinking that. Now I'm going to do some old stuff, find out stomach ulcer research. And then, of course, also he's going to join us in one of our, in the show in Perth. And currently, I think his fingers have been glued back on um, because as well as winning the Nobel Prize, sometimes he uses uh, various home improvement tools without the guard on. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that's, but you know, so he is... There are those examples, and we know another, I mentioned him to you yesterday, Andrea Seller, who's a great uh, chemist and, and demonstrator based at UCL, and he's the kind of person to pick up a thing on the floor and just go, oh no, that's that really poisonous thing. Don't taste it, Andrea! Why are your hands so gnarled and covered in bumps? Sometimes I test stuff with my hands when I shouldn't, and then, uh, you know, that's, uh, yeah. that's when you test a chemist, isn't it? Let me shake hands. Your hands are too smooth for a chemist. <laughs> <laughs> you have a, a lovely selection of uh, books there. Let's start with the first one. Uh, you have Being Mortal. Oh, so um, this is what I'm reading now, Being Mortal. I'm really... So Being Mortal is um, about illness and medicine, and it's about... Um, look, we're living longer, and apparently that's a good thing, but it's not necessarily a good thing. And, and so I read that because I read this book called Complications by the same author, um, and Complications is about how hard it is to be a surgeon because you have to make human decisions on the spot in surgery that may kill somebody. Wow. Um, and so being mortal is fascinating because it's about are we trying to keep people alive for too long? Because with modern medicine, what we do is we try and keep you alive for as long as possible. And it's not about quality of life anymore. It's about, well, we kept you alive, so therefore we'll do this and do that, and now you're still alive, as opposed to saying actually maybe it's time for you to go medicine doesn't doesn't accept that modern medicine what it does is it say we're going to pump you through this and we're going to pump you through that and we're going to keep these things working so that you are still living as opposed to saying do you know what actually your quality of life is not great we're going to take some of those medications away and we're just going to let your body shut down naturally as it's supposed to because this is your time um and it's that end of life care and i'm really fascinated in that um, so my father ended up being in both Gulf Wars um, and then became very sick with cancer. And so I nursed him um, to his death um, and his death was incredibly slow. And so I probably wasn't pro-euthanasia until I've watched somebody very close to me who was very fit and healthy die of something very slow where they couldn't communicate anymore. They couldn't eat and they literally died of what well, was horrible. And I thought, we are pumping you full of drugs to keep you alive. But actually... 
you shouldn't be alive. Like if we didn't pump you full of this, you would have gone 30 days ago when you stopped eating and 12 days ago when you stopped taking fluids in and rather having this horrific death where you can't communicate, we should have just switched it, you know? And so I'm really fascinated in this book, Being Mortal, because it's about are we making the right decisions at end of life care that actually are beneficial to the patient? And how do you as a human now who has great health make those choices for yourself mm. and what choices would you want to be made because it's really easy at end of life to try and make decisions to keep people alive because you're desperate for that for that contact but actually would you want that for yourself and i think it's a really fascinating conversation around not just euthanasia but what do you choose to give to somebody to prolong their life and is that actually the right decision so big questions uh, since you accept i've seen it Myself, that thing where when in hospitals, in, in wards for the elderly, where they're being kept alive, but they're not necessarily getting the chance to have any exercise because there's no one there to do that. Yeah. So they get through the illness and then when they come home, they're too weak to actually do anything. Mm. And so that I think it's a, a very interesting about how, how much can we commit should if we are going to do that we need to commit more time and mm -hmm. we need to commit more money to go and this mm -hmm. isn't really about keeping you alive we're also going to be able to take you now for a walk and we're going to be able to give you stimulation and yep. all of those things yep. and so complications the other book that i read first is about the mistakes that doctors make and you know how is it that a doctor can take out your you know your left liver or left kidney or you know one of the if mistakes they're taking out the left liver I know, it's like, you're going on, hang on a minute you oh, I don't I'm know whether to take out the left or the right liver. Can well, I have one of the doctors who just goes for the singular liver? For yes, you can. Yes, <laughs> biology is not my strong point. But, <laughs> um, but around surgery and how can those accidents happen? And, and it's about the humanness of being a doctor. And actually, you do make mistakes. And and in this current climate, especially in the US, with legislation and people being sued, why on earth would you be a doctor these days? Because there's so much insurance cost, and and it's actually such a high risk job because you're more likely to be sued because you made a mistake, but we all make mistakes. But for some reason, we don't allow doctors to make human mistakes like we do a mechanic of a car. And it's quite a similar thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so why is it that we treat doctors so differently? And what is it like to be a doctor who's made a mistake? Um, because they want, you want medical science to be completely comprehensive. And then when you find out like, I remember my friend has um, an autoimmune thing. Mm -hmm. And when she went to the doctor, the doctor drew her a pyramid and went, okay, this little triangle in the top of the pyramid is what we know, and this is what we don't know. And, like, neither of us, neither she or I, because obviously we're, like, literature people, and she came home and told me that, and I was like, what? Like, I just assumed that there was very little that was unknown about the body still. And so I think people really, really want doctors to be magic. Of course they do. And yet we're so opposed to robots. So I love robots, right? I'm into um, artificial intelligence or robotics. And there are some incredible robots that can do surgery. And yet we are reluctant to allow a robot to do surgery on it, even though we know that statistically it's more accurate than a human. Mm. And then we want the human to do it. But then if they make a mistake, well, then that's not allowed. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. we live in this weird world of, well, I don't want that tech because, you know, I trust a human. I don't trust a robot. And it makes sense to trust a robot because they're programmed <laughs> to do exactly that thing. Um, and also they can do it with minimal um, invasion, so they need smaller wounds and you're more likely to recover. Of course, because they can be a tiny, precise little needle, yeah. like so a keyhole. The problem with humans is wrists. 
Mm. And the problem with oh, wrists God. is you have to have really, you have to cut really large holes into people to get their wrists Of course, if you've got in. to get right, oh my gosh, I've yeah. never thought about it. Whereas with now. robots, they're little needle devices. You can have a couple of keyhole points and then you can put nobles on the end of them for whatever tool you need. Like a mixer, like a like, blender. Exactly. And so you have keyhole surgery is much more um, likely to get infection, or less likely to get infection and you're more likely to recover. It makes so much sense as well because it it's less does. exposed. And you're a patient not- and patients choose normal surgery because they don't trust a robot it's really interesting our psychology around what we trust and what we don't and yet what we blame when it goes wrong even though we knew the risks were greater but it makes sense it does make sense would you me. trust a robot did you yeah, surgery on you? yeah give him a go because otherwise if it, i feel like if I, a human being would leave a big bit of gauze in my stomach by mistake and then 10 years later, I'd be like, oh, I've always had terrible stomach pain <laughs> since. And then they'd have a look and they'd be like, oh, look at this horrible old gauze that's been left here. Robot's oh, not going to do that. That's Freud and his, his mate, who he then stopped being mates with. I'm trying to remember, uh, was it the case of Dora where uh, they did an operation on her nose and they just left loads of gauze up there and she oh. never fully recovered and had a whole... Poor old uh, Dora. And, and it was that thing of, yeah, again, in terms of mansplaining. I'll tell you why you got those headaches. <laughs> it's because of the way your father used to ride a horse. <laughs> I really think there's loads of gauze in my face i've had that that's definitely a women's health thing a lot of the time is trying to speak to uh people and them saying well this is probably emotional and then you being like actually it was a kidney infection (laughs) i am oh gosh never mind i thought i'd had something to say but i've forgotten it so it's not you can come back we've had plenty of time to oh this is it. Here it is. Last night I watched a frankly bafflingly terrible um, TV show about a man who'd got a microchip implanted into his brain. So what he could do was connect to the internet at any time to solve crimes. Oh. Is that is that is that coming? Uh, oh, hang on. I know though. You mentioned Michael Crichton yesterday, didn't I did. you? Did I brought the book? Well, oh. I was thinking of another Can Michael Crichton one, The Terminal Man. Do you know The Terminal Man? Ooh, the Terminal Man is about, and they turn it to film with George Siegel, as they often did in the 1970s, and it's all about he is someone who has these kind of psychotic episodes, and they place a chip in the brain that uh, calms him during those moments so that wow. he won't kill. But of course what happens is it's such a lovely feeling that it becomes psychotic more and more often so the that the bus. brain will then get that. Mm. Yeah. I love Michael Crichton. He's so good. And I don't read very much fiction, but I do love science fiction. That's yeah. I'm a real sort of non-fiction person, but this is the book that changed my life. It's the actual book, so it's probably old and smelly and has a lot of crinkles on it. It's the one that literally, as a, as a 17-year-old, I read it and I said, this is it. I'm going to change my, This is the book. So at the time, I was um, going to study engineering at the University of Manchester, and I studied materials engineering, specializing in fracture mechanics, how things break... And I read this book and I was like, oh, nanotechnology. This sounds really cool. And it's, it's an evil book, right? It's about nanotechnology swarming and taking over the world and killing people and all of that stuff. Like, and I loved it. And so you were like, I'm going to become a supervillain. No, so that, that happened. And then, no, exactly. <laughs> um, and then as I'm reading that, I also was this massive Star Trek nerd. And in Star Trek, there was the Borg species. And the Borg species assimilate other species using nanoprobes, right? That's who their optical node. And so... Suddenly the word nano was coming up more than once and I'm like, this is a sign. Wow. I need to figure out what nanotechnology is and whether it exists because right now I've only seen it in science fiction and then I want to take over people's minds with <laughs> nanotech. So then I became a nanotechnologist and that was my PhD was in nanotechnology based on this book. And how do you feel about it now you have studied it so extensively and it's become your work? Like, How do you now feel about this fiction of it? Do you enjoy reading things or are you like, oh. um, that's incorrect? 
So I'm I'm awful. Don't never take me to the movies because I'm huh. literally that person. But Michael Crichton's book, and the reason why I love him as an author is he's technically correct all wow. the time. Like he writes about a scanning electron microscope that I use all the time at work, and he'll talk about oh, and then I press this dial, and it is the dial that you would press as a scientist. And I love his attention to detail and everything that he does as an author. He's incredibly detailed, focused, and he's so scientifically correct. Does he have that- a background in science, or is he just? Good. No, he's just good. So he did Jurassic Park. I mean, he did so many of the great Of course, Jurassic books. Park. Right. Many of them. He's an incredible writer. Yeah, but, he's like right, he's, the biggest yeah. um, science fiction writer then. Right. And sadly, died of throat cancer because he said he couldn't um, write books without smoking. And so he used to be this chain smoker to get his inspiration for writing the books. And then sadly, it was the thing that um, was his early demise. But this book is the actual one that turned me around and is why I'm a nanotechnologist today. That and Star Trek, so yeah. But also, it's really wonderful that now you can come back to it and be like, he's actually accurate. He's done the work. I know. And and the concepts he writes about in the book are still things we're fighting with today. So he talks about, can you program swarm technology? So how, why do birds swarm or bees swarm and why do birds flock? And it's because actually there is no leader bee. There is no leader bird. They just are programmed to look at the bird next to them and have an algorithm around, well, there's a bird next to me, keep this distance, keep birds around me. And so that's how all this flocking of birds happens. And so what they do in the book is they talk about, well, could you use that swarm technology into nanoprobes and then create a system that doesn't need to be intelligent, but knows how to behave around things around it. And then it creates its own intelligence. And this is what we're doing now today as scientists is challenging whether or not we should invent things like this because if you do give a little bit of intelligence to something what happens next does it evolve where does it go and and we don't know until we do it and so there's real challenges around what do we do um, and who controls that and it makes you wish that the people who invented twitter had put more thought into it in advance (laughs) well we all know paul tim berners lee as well oh dear this hasn't worked out for me i'd like to ask you um you know that black mirror about the little bees how do you feel about that? Is it any way at all based in anything potentially usable? Oh, usable, yeah. I mean, so there's lots of potential. And that's the great thing about about all of these amazing things that are coming out is it's it's a little bit scary, but you see it's good potential. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, so going back to bees, is swarm technology is being used in little micro robots to help with pollination because we know that we're losing bees. Mm-hmm. And we know that bees pretty much pollinate all the things that keep us alive in the world. And without mm-hmm. pollination, everything's going to die and we're going to die. And so they created these little um, baby robots, basically little flying swarming robots MIT that are designed to have a color filter in their camera to pick up yellow just like bees do to look at pollen and to pollinate different plants by going from yellow to yellow to yellow but do you program in sort of that bee swarm technology be like oh or and do you allow them to evolve so you know that this yellow has pollen and do you and I think it's really interesting because yes it has huge potential but also if you want to <coughs> spread some sort of horrendous genetic virus around the world well that's how you would do it Oofed. and so um when it comes to you know mass weapons uh, all of those so science for evil and science are good there is there's a line but it's a really fine line and actually if you want to do science for good you're going to open up science for evil and this is one of the challenges we have and it's one of the great things about science fiction is they tend to write science for evil and so all of those things that we read you're like oh well is that good could we use that and you're like well i could use that to kill the world <laughs> or i could use that to save the world and so um yeah well and also it's that thing of science for evil then also can inadvertently have consequences that are useful as well and like yeah. and science for evil pays more Right? And that's the challenge. But everything for evil pays more. That's <laughs> yeah. their one perk. They're like, we got all this money. 
And so if you haven't seen, so um, contact lenses, for example, um, there was this group in Spain who put nanotechnology onto contact lenses so that they could see UV light and then they would mark cards. And they made millions in casinos by cheating because you couldn't tell. It's and very smart. It's super smart. That's like giving them money. I know. Um, um, sadly, they were caught after three years and all put in jail. So not that smart. But three years is a long so, time. There was a lot. There was millions of dollars. So now from that science of evil, we're now um, putting wires and chips and stuff into contact lenses because suddenly people are like, oh, look, there's something on our eye that actually we don't use half of. And so we could actually, and you can measure glucose in tears, for example. So now we can have some sort of diabetic sensor um, in a contact lens that you don't have to think about. And so, but it needed science for evil for somebody to be like, oh, do you know what we could do with that? <laughs> um, and even with science fiction, I see a lot of stuff that's written in some of these movies coming out and um, Black Mirror and all of that. And you think, oh, somebody somewhere is going to be like, do you know what we could do with that for good? Um, yeah, but wow. you need the good people because it doesn't pay well. Not compared to evil. <laughs> Going back to the, the surgery, so we should say, by the way, we didn't mention it's Atoll Goanda who wrote the two books for being mortal yeah. and who wrote an amazing <laughs> essay. Did you ever read that one that's in, um, I think it's in one of the collections of uh, yeah, best science writing of the, of the year. And he wrote this essay about someone who, something to do with the nerves that make an itch feeling. Hmm. And we don't know very much about them. And there was this woman who ended up scratching. One morning she woke up and she had all green on her. And she thought, Ugh, what's all this? And she'd actually scratched through her skull oh. into her brain. That's oh, an God, no, no. Incredible story. Wow. Oh, why she did survived. She say that? You but, should have had some sort of warning for that. <laughs> uh, right. Trigger warning for you anyone who's. Retrospectively, for, for, for trigger warning. Brain scratching. That's the worst you thing I've ever heard. You can in a block universe. <laughs> right. So, um, but. Sorry, I wanted to mention, uh, in terms of surgeons who are... Oh, the itch. Yeah, there we go. And it was in the New Yorker. Thank oh. you very much, Trent. Uh, it's, but it's an incredible story. And they and, and she was doing it in her sleep as well. And they, they had to... She ended up having to have special gloves on and stuff. And they're trying to work out. They're going, but she has no nerve endings Little there. Mittens. Why does there seem to be a memory hmm. of... It's a really incredible story. But I wanted to mention, have you... Uh, it's a thing of surgery. Henry Marsh's book, Do No Harm. Mm-mm. Have you read that yet? No, I haven't, please. He's the great, uh, I'm sure we've mentioned him before, neurosurgeon who does things like uh, he goes out uh, to the Ukraine with uh, just a load of equipment and does loads of rapid brain surgery because there's almost no brain surgery there. So we just meet people, they'll do scans, they go, you've got a tumour, but here we go. Um, And that is one of the most exciting, in terms of the jeopardy, as you were saying, Mm. you know, the risk-taking, there are people I know who haven't been able to read the book because... You, he's talking to the patient beforehand and he knows where he's going to have to go in the brain if there's just a little slip or indeed if the tumour is just a little larger than imagined then you may well wake up yeah. and you're paralysed or you've yeah. lost most of your consciousness and all of those things Yeah. and that jeopardy is to me a remarkable thing Yeah. and that challenge of do you do it or do you not because you have the potential to increase this person's life no end and the potential to totally just ruin end it, it. Um, and it's why I'm not a doctor. It's <laughs> one of many reasons why I'm not. In fact, I, so I was going to go to med school um, because um, luckily being a military kid, everybody says, oh, you're good at science and maths. Careers advisors like, you should be a doctor when you grow up. And I was like, I don't want it. Like, I don't like people. This is not what I want to <laughs> no. do. 
Um, and so as part of the challenge, I said, we should do some work experiences, typical British high schools do. I'm like, oh, okay. Everybody signed me to be a doctor, all right. And then my dad said, well, come and volunteer and spend your summers on the military base with me. So I did. So my summer, six weeks of summer holidays were spent on military bases following around doctors. Um, and they seemed, so I removed verrucas as a 16 year old oh. on military, and military feet are interesting. But um, I did hearing tests for pilots and I did the colorblind. And what was really challenging is doing a colorblind test for a a potential pilot and knowing that they were colorblind and they were going to fail. And it was quite sad. But um, that was really interesting. And it taught me I definitely don't want to be a doctor. Um, And so um, I just don't have that personality. And I I couldn't make those decisions about people. I just think, you know, I make a lot of mistakes in engineering and it's all right because my piece of steel broke and okay, I'll get a new one. Um, But doing that with somebody's life is so much responsibility and the hours that they work it's crazy and I you know it's like teachers I hats off to all those people who choose those careers because I'm um, astonished by teachers because what we do is essential and and also the same with science communication is you know we work a 20th of the amount of hours on stage when we perform on stage people want to hear us and in the main part they're quiet and appreciative and then afterwards obviously we do have to do the writing and you obviously have to do the research and the work and stuff but at the same time we don't have to do marking we don't you know the amount of work that teachers spend a lot of time marking ourselves though don't we that's true i better check twitter and social media i've failed again look at their gloomy (laughs) emoticons surrounding my performance but also you don't have to back up your stuff with truth no that's true i was thinking oh hang on no there is a little bit where you do have to well yes it's no I've noticed that I mean I've got away with some of it but uh, every now and again that someone goes well the punchline works but it's uh, based on a very awkward and tissue thin premise I'll trust doctors and researchers to have advanced since I wrote this show damn sometimes I deliberately don't read the new scientist for six months if I'm touring a show based around science but we'll let you get away with it whereas if a scientist got out there and had anything that was even slightly wrong we are slammed and we lose our credibility it's like well you obviously didn't spend a hundred hours reading every single citation that you should you know and you're like oh I'm just trying to get the message out Uh, yeah yeah please trying to share some love people are going to be inspired (laughs) by somebody yeah no I, I was thinking about us with what I like about the fact that if you're writing a stand-up show on a theme, you go and you research that theme and you can read a whole book about something very dense and very difficult and then the end of the joke that you end up with is you hitting yourself in the head with the book or something and that becomes the output of that work, you know? I like that. But yeah, yeah, teachers and doctors. Although I feel if there's any doctors listening that they, um, I hope they're not put off by us being like, your job is so hard. It's hard. (laughs) Well, I think the announcement in the Henry Marsh documentary, which also, by the way, has a soundtrack by Nick Cave and Warren Ellis, um, he he has so little time when he's in the Ukraine Mm. that sometimes someone comes in and he has to say to them, I'm afraid to tell you it's about a month and there's nothing we can do. (sighs) Oh, Yeah. And I don't quite know. I mean, there's one of my relatives who's a, a, a paediatric nurse, and those things, mm-hmm. which we don't. I mean, that's the main thing. We're irresponsible people, aren't we? <laughs> that's why we're comedians. We're irresponsible. We really can't take any form of kind of, you know, pressure or, well, or, no, or we commitment. We trust our judgment and we trust the pressure, but our judgment is like, I'm going to wait another second before I say bum. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it doesn't matter. <laughs> That got really good last night, by the way. It was Pinteresque, the lead-up to that moment of bum. 
Um, I like the way that you summarise your stand-up in a way that is totally not what you do in stand-up. <laughs> now, if anyone had only just heard this at the time, yeah, Josie Long, she's the one I think she goes on stage and hits herself with a book while saying bum, <laughs> which is quite a long way from what you actually do. I have had a routine where I just hit myself in the face and at my current show that I'm doing in Melbourne, there's a bit where I say... I've got a big stupid bum for a head. And instead of a mouth, I've got a bum hole. Instead of words, just a bunch of little farts. So actually, 100% accurate. You've really changed. <laughs> I'm sorry, you've got another book. Let, um, let's ask oh. you about it. So, you know, people ask me what do I read. And so I'm a big audiobook reader, so I always have something going on. And it's great because the library, they're free. So I always have something happening. If I'm not pod- listening to a podcast, I'm listening to an audiobook. Um, but I wanted to, I went to my bookshelf to see what physical books I have because I move a lot. So I don't keep much stuff. I don't have my, so the books that I do have are books that are really important to me or really precious um, and I've just written a book which is about to be published and not out till October because it takes them forever why does it take so long <laughs> um, and in writing a book I realised how much it's hard like it's way harder than I thought it was going to I was like oh yeah I just sort of like write some stuff and it'll be all good it's really hard um, what is your so, new book about because you know oh. it's going to be out in October yeah so like it's, it's very much for a New Zealand audience but it's called Number 8 Recharge so we have this thing here called Number 8 Wired mentality basic because New Zealand is the back end beyond we're really good at just making stuff in our garage to fix solutions and some of the coolest things have been made out of some Kiwi who's um, so number eight wire is the fencing wire that we use in our farms and so the number eight wire mentality is a very sort of how New Zealanders just get on and build something oh, and we don't British import stuff so um, it's a book called number eight recharged and it's about how to take that number eight wired re- mentality but in the tech space so I've basically um, with my co-author David Downs we've we've tracked down some of the coolest inventions that New Zealanders have made either in the tech space or regular space um, and sort of put the inventions down but also the story behind who they were and how they were invented and I had a real challenge because I really wanted to make this a gender friendly book and female inventors don't put them they don't get all the glory and so I had to dig into some pretty deep holes and um, but things like life jackets and um, for the British in World War One were invented by a little old lady who lived in Dunedin which is the middle of freaking nowhere New Zealand um, because of this story about how when she was born her mother had a traumatic pregnancy um, and the pregnancy was around she thought her son had drowned in a boat and so she cried all the way through her pregnancy and apparently then in the Victorian ages um, the mother's emotions are imprinted on the brain of the child and so they thought this child was haunted with all the dead souls of this huge uh, drowning there was 196 people drowned on this boat and so they thought they had this child and they took it to all these witch doctors to pull out the dead souls so this this woman had death and drowning around her her whole time and then her brother did drown sadly and then the british government said um when people jumped off the titanic because their life jackets were made of cork they were too hard and people died from the impact of the cork hitting their heads because they jumped from a high height and so she said well so the British government said we need a new way of making life jackets and she sat and she sewed cotton and wool into these amazing life jackets and she designed them in a smart way which is you can put them on in any direction and they still work because in an emergency you're not like oh this way your arms go in here and so her life jackets became the norm and her first order this little old lady in Dunedin 30,000 from the British government for the World War One, which she had her friends make and they shipped them over and <laughs> that's like, so funny the I idea love of stories like, like that yeah like well, we've got an order in. Yeah. Oh, how many is it? Is it three or four? We better get oh. Boris to come up with And No, I'm afraid I won't be able to do the church fate anymore. <laughs> it's exactly how it was. And yet, 
you just think, wow, these stories, they're not heard of very yeah. often. And she was, she was named after the boat that her brother was supposed to drown on. Oh, and like gosh. this whole horrific story that turned into good. And actually they weren't, her um, life jackets weren't replaced until plastics were invented. And they got like the yellow inflatable ones. Wow. And you just think, this little old lady, you know, that nobody's heard of. But it's so important to seek those stories out and I celebrate them. them I because them. I think there'll be so, you know. The more people do that now, the more we try and shift culture so that women Huge. actually get their legacy and Huge. their posterity. And all what I that. found really interesting, so I read about as many people as I could, so we have over 200 inventors, is the gender difference. Because I specifically went looking out for female inventors that hadn't been um, storified before. And I found it really interesting. So most, I would say 90% of the women that I wrote about, they gave up an amazing job because they wanted to solve something that they thought would make a difference. Wow. 90% of the men that I wrote about saw a problem like, oh, yeah, I'll fix that. And just <laughs> like, it wasn't, you know, it was like, oh, these windscreen wipers don't work. I can make a better windscreen wiper. Like nothing that would really change the world, but would solve their problem then. And they did that. still useful. Totally. But it was really like a, like the women had great jobs and they quit everything to do a passion project that they thought would totally say. And I found it really interesting because what I haven't seen much of in the literature is female founder led company books so we say you know build a business do this 10 you know startup success stories da, 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 da. but i don't think we've looked at gender and and if there are different drivers towards how different people actually set up businesses because if there are maybe they need different advice and different books around that so i found that really interesting or maybe a certain type of business has managed to dominate because yeah. of certain ways and yeah, Gosh, so I should mention just because we were talking about that, Trailblazers, who we've mentioned before, but Trailblazers and Brenna Hassett, who will be on this, I hope, quite soon, who has a new book out. And Trailblazers is all looking at uh, various different um, uh, areas of science and mm. anthropology yeah. uh, where it has been female led because they basically found that various people, various women in that area went, oh, here are all these names. And look, we found all these pictures that haven't got put up in the science museum <laughs> because it's it's a little bit like the the number of, uh, for instance, uh, Indian soldiers in the First World War. And you find out how many there were, and you go, "Why we never see those photos?" Something as simple as that. But yeah, Trailblazers do have a look for that, that, that website. It's just, it, well, that's actually just a website and an organisation. Mm. And Brenna Hassett now has a, a a book about her work out, and we will have her on the show at some point. And your mm. final book. My final book is, I guess, a theme of books that I have. This is called Why Things Break um, by Mark E. Ebenhardt. And I love this as much as I love the science of stuff um, and why you don't fall through the floor. They're a sort of theme of books that I have. As a materials engineer, I love books that are about stuff around us that we, we take for granted. Mm. Why is it that we don't fall through the floor? Why do we make chairs out of this and all out of that? And... Um, and books like this I love because they just give you a perspective on why everything around us works and why it is like that. And somebody somewhere has done some thought, you know, why the light bulbs shape the, the way that they are. Um, and this is an old book. And again, it's one that's traveled <laughs> around the world with me. Um, but I love that whole, as a science communicator, how do we get our stories out of what we do and why it's important? Um, and also, it's one of those things where that kind of, like me having ignorance about, Aviation, for example, mm -hmm. makes me frightened about aviation. Mm -hmm. If I read about the, you know, the massive culture of people okay. who make aviation work, yeah. I wouldn't be like, oh, well, oh, planes would drop I out of the know. sky. No, you see, I wonder because it's a bit like doctors that I've spoken to finding out that many of them are hypochondriacs. Because even though they know all of the different things, they also have such a catalogue of things that mean, well, this itch can be this number of things, <laughs> oh. but it may well be the one that means I accidentally itch my brain out. 
Sorry, Jason, I just thought I'd say that again. But no, so I'm not sure you might go. This is really brilliant how many people are involved. I didn't realise how many different things could actually go wrong and how they make sure, oh my God, what if one of them was drunk that morning? (laughs) But this sounds really useful because like, so I had a a car crash years ago that was like a near-death experience and a month afterwards, my sort of shock manifested itself by I stopped trusting buildings mm-hmm. I'd be sat in buildings and I'd be like oh no how can we be sure you know and it'd be so useful to be like the roof will stay up because physics it will but airbags could have killed you when they first were invented because airbags you know about this so airbags no, when I they don't. first fit into car for the first year killed women and children oh god because it was I'm an, one of those yeah because it was an all-male design team oh, and they were oh, like Jesus Christ. they were like oh so do you think this will work and all the 70 kilo men were like oh yeah it looks about right um and so oh, they designed something god. to fit them and the crash test dummy is also the same shape as the men in the room who were designing it and at no point did anybody with any diversity come into the conversation because there wasn't diversity then Mm. and so the engineers that designed um, airbags actually ended up killing a whole bunch of people because they just didn't think babies and women it blows my mind it it reminds me of um, I saw a stand-up show by Rosie O'Donnell on a plane about Mm. how she had a heart attack and about Mm. how female heart attacks have different different symptoms massively different and that nobody thought that everyone was like well, this is the default. So yeah. why is everyone? It's like when I was a kid and I was left-handed and I was constantly excluded from everything. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Uh, thank you so much for coming and doing our thank podcast. You. It's so interesting to hear about your choices. And welcome to New Zealand. Oh, thank you. If you ever get bored of Brexit, we've got plenty of space here. But it's so far. (laughs) (laughs) It's not far when you live here. (laughs) It's true, it's just round the corner. Oh, and we should say as well uh, that uh, Stupid Questions for Scientists is your podcast. And uh, so listen to that. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening and a massive thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. Uh, some of those we'd like to thank especially this week are Vicky Leslie, Asina Sahin, Chloe North, Adrian Lawrence, Anxious Silence. I'm guessing that's not your actual name, although maybe it is. So uh, apologies if it is. Simon Harper, Angela Morton, Daniel Reefershied, Luther Bedlam, Philippa Shepley, Karen Johnson and Carolyn Sefton. And the Box of Books winner this week is Luke Jackson. Luke Jackson, if that's you, uh, drop us an email to contact at cosmicshambles.com with your address and we'll get your prize out to you. And don't forget you can find all of the past episodes of Book Shambles at cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles as well as reading lists for all the episodes. And while you're there, don't forget to have a look around the rest of the Cosmic Shambles Network site for lots of other podcasts and blogs and videos and documentaries and web series and all sorts of stuff for curious people like yourselves. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Thanks very much. Bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.